We'll be looking this morning at Genesis chapter 3. If you've been in Sunday school the last two weeks, you might be thinking, again, we've been looking a lot at the fall. Today we looked at the covenants that God made with man and just think this would be an important passage for all of us to spend some time considering together. So we'll be looking at Genesis 3, verses 1 and following. This is God's word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you, shall, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This sends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, as our Savior prayed for us, sanctify us in the truth. Uh, Your word is truth. 
We ask that as we look at Genesis 3 this morning and consider this terrible opening scene of human history, but the glory of the gospel in this chapter, Father, that you would uh, open our eyes to see Jesus, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would make us into people who know him and love him and follow him more deeply. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. When I was 16, uh, I went on a backpacking trip in British Columbia with my dad. Uh, I was a really scrawny kid at 16, so that was quite an adventure, carrying all your provisions for a week and then you know, going back for a day to the, uh, the, the guide's home and getting set up to then go back out uh, with canoes that we portaged between lakes. It was, it was quite a trip. Uh, I remember the first day we were uh, hiking through the forest, which itself was beautiful, uh, and we came up this ridge that was called Heart Attack Ridge uh, for all the right reasons. And we get to the top of the ridge, finally, huffing and puffing. But the view at the top of this ridge was just incredible. Uh, the view was breathtaking. Uh, it was this lush alpine valley. I think they call it a bowl. And you see these stands of trees dotting this majestic-looking panoramic view uh, in front of you. You see patches of snow, and you see uh, creeks running through this, this bowl. And it's simply breathtaking. Uh, This is sort of, I think, the sense we get at the end of Genesis 1 and 2. At the end of Genesis 1 and 2, God's work of creation is done. Uh, God's masterpiece, right? Flinging stars into existence, forming the mountain peaks, setting streams flowing, coming up with ants and aardvarks and elephants, and then God steps back and he says, it's so good. It's very good. (laughs) Then imagine... A raging wildfire comes through, and this wildfire, not unlike the ones that we're familiar with in our part of creation, just raises it all to the ground. It comes through this beautiful scene, and it's ash and soot and scorched earth. That's Genesis 3. That's Genesis 3 on the heels of God's good creation. That's the devastation that sets the stage for the greatest story ever told. So this morning, I want us to look at this terrible unfolding of events in Genesis 3 because it's a crucial part of our story. It's a crucial part of your story. We can look at Genesis uh, 3 this morning, and we can't cover everything, but I think we can get to Jesus, and that will be a good thing for us to do uh, against the backdrop of the darkness in Genesis 3. But this is not at all an abstract exercise. We're not looking at some detached irrelevant time in the past. What was unleashed in Genesis 3 uh, touches all of the pain and the heartache and the suffering in each and every one of our lives. Before the fall, marriages didn't end in divorce. Cousins didn't get cancer. Children didn't suffer abuse. And the list can go on and on, of course. But the fall changed all of that. Every tear you shed, every pain that you face in life comes from this event, from this moment. But the good news comes here too. Your sin and your suffering can only be overcome by God's grace. It's surprising grace. It surprises, it in a surprising way appears on the scene in Genesis 3. So we'll look at that together. I want to walk through the story kind of in three parts. We'll look at the fall, the fallout, and the final word. The fall, the fallout, and the final word. First, the fall. Now the serpent, Genesis 3.1, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The antagonist enters the script at this point. The enemy comes on the scene. The serpent, the adversary, the cunning angel of light, Scripture calls him. 
the great dragon, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And this enemy attacks God and his good creation. And he finds an angle to attack God and his plan by tempting those who were created to bear witness to God's glory to commit sin against their glorious God. He goes after the image bearers because he hates the one whose image they bear. So what's his angle? What's his plan of attack? He attacks that which he most hates. Uh, The enemy, Satan, attacks God's truth. Jesus said that the enemy, in John 8, 44, Jesus says, the enemy does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. There is no truth in him. When he lies, he is true to his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He's a shrewd deceiver who attacks God's truth. And he does it, I think, in kind of a two-step way. First, he casts suspicion on God. He invites suspicion about God's intentions. What does he say to Eve in Genesis 3.1? Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did he actually say this? Uh, Derek Kidner points out that there's a tone in what the serpent says. This tone that smuggles in the assumption that God's word is subject to our judgment. And Eve takes the bait. She puts God's good provision under the microscope of her own judgment. And she says in verse 2, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Do you see what's going on here? If you, if you remember the story, God has been so abundantly generous. You can eat of all the trees, God says. You can eat of all the trees, every single plant, every single tree, except for one. But you wouldn't know it by what Eve says. We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. The seed of suspicion has been planted. If there's any doubt she's becoming suspicious of God's intentions, notice what she says by way of addition. God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So what has Eve done? She's abbreviated God's abundant provision, and she's exaggerated God's prohibition. Haven't we done this? I think we've done this too. We've abbreviated God's provision and exaggerated God's prohibition. We've abbreviated his yes and exaggerated his no. But when we do that, we are completely forgetting the abundant provision that we have in Christ. What don't we have in Christ? John 4, 14. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. John 8, 36. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This is why Paul tells the believers at Corinth, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Sincere and pure devotion to a good Savior, to an abundant Savior who has your good at heart, who has supplied all of your needs. So beware of the devil's lies that he still tempts us with, tempting us to be suspicious of God. Be suspicious of God having your good at heart. It's not true. God has given you all that you need. We see Satan attacks God's truth. He also offers an attractive alternative to God's way. He offers an attractive alternative. It's ultimately empty. There's sharp rocks at the bottom, but it looks good. It seems like a good alternative. 
And this might be the best rig in Satan's tackle box. Brooks, uh, Thomas Brooks describes it so well when he talks about this device or this scheme that Satan uses to tempt Adam and Eve in the garden and to tempt us today. Brooks says, this is to present the bait and hide the hook. By this device, he took our first parents. Your eyes shall be open and you shall be as gods. Here is the bait, the sweet, the pleasure, the profit. Oh, but he hides the hook, the pain, the wrath, and the loss that would certainly follow. Satan presented the bait so well, luring Eve in by making her suspicious of God's truth. Then he presented a way that seemed so much more attractive than God's way. But he tucked that sharp hook right up in the worm where she couldn't see it and dangles it in front of her. This is what you could have. And he hides from her the death and the pain and the loss that's going to follow from this sin. In verse 5, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So Satan twists the meaning of the tree. He twists it to serve his own ends here. They're going to know good and evil all right, because they will have abandoned God's good way, and they will have committed evil, and they will know firsthand what it is to know good and evil, and then to come under judgment. They will rip apart this relationship that they have with God by committing this sin against him. We face this sin every single day when we are tempted to follow the alternative that's presented to us instead of God's good way. Well, Satan presents the bait and he hides the hook, and I think if we're all being honest, we've felt that in our own lives, and maybe we're feeling the weight of sin right now. Uh, There's hope coming in this passage, but it gets darker before the light of the gospel shines. In Genesis 3, 6, we read, The woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, and she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. In the words of the English poet John Milton, Greedily she engorged without restraint, and knew not eating death. Therefore, Romans 5.12, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. She took and she ate. She gave to Adam, her husband, and he ate. And as our representative, as the head of the human race, as the one who would, by his obedience, obtain life for his posterity, he fails and goes his own way. And we feel the pain of that all the way down to the present day. So that's the fall. Let's look at the fallout. What happened in the wake of all of this? Maybe you noticed the serpent just kind of slips from the scene. Uh, He's done his worst, and he kind of slithers into the background as the story begins to unfold. Adam and Eve's eyes are open. They know what they've done. They're ashamed. We can just imagine the serpent hissing in satisfaction. Eve knows that she's done wrong. She feels the sting of sin. Satan loves to let us suffer that stinging realization that we've sinned and we've done wrong. She knows that she's done wrong. We've felt that sting too. We've cringed when we've sat down at sin's feast, but then there's that bitter aftertaste of guilt when we know that we've done wrong. Adam is ashamed. He now realizes that there was never an alternative way to go. There was never an alternative course that would lead away from his responsibility to God. He looked for his own way and 
what he came to find out is he was just going in circles beneath God's throne. He could never escape God's ever-watching eye. That's what happens when we try to run from God. We really can't run from God at all. We learn that there is no escaping the God who will judge all the earth. The darkness just continues to unfold in the story. But even in this dark moment of history, I think we see two wonderful, encouraging truths. Uh, I think these are truths about God that rightly understood they should be incredibly encouraging to us. Uh, First, we see that God's rule is unrivaled. Someone rightly said there may be rebels in God's kingdom, but there are no rivals. There may be rebels, but there are no rivals. Even in the thick of this mess of Genesis 3, that's encouraging news. There may be those who covet God's rule, who want to place themselves on the throne, but no one can conquer God's throne. Competition with God is a delusion. It can't be done. We're kidding ourselves when we think that we can go our own way and chart our own course and be our own gods. There may be rebels, but there are no rivals. Here's what God says about proud people who think they can stand against his rule and his reign. Isaiah 22, 17 through 19. Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die. That is encouraging, even though it's terrifying, to know that God is seated on his throne and there is no one who can rival his rule. We also see that God's word here is unwaveringly true. What God says comes to pass. All that God says will happen, happens. All of it. The curse was declared. I won't read through it all again for the sake of time, but just listen to Genesis 3.19, just the climax of the curse. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. From this point forward, death is the resounding, repetitive note of all of human history. In Genesis 5, we read Adam's genealogy. He begins to father children after his own likeness. A man under a curse, fathering children under the same curse, after his image, dead in their sin. And we read, thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And like a drumbeat, we read it again and again, and he died, and he died. They all died. This may not seem very encouraging yet, but you have to see what grace has rescued us from. Maybe you even think it was harsh for God to pass down such a severe sentence uh, on Adam and Eve. Where's the leniency? Where's the love of a father? But you see, if God's word wavers or is untrue at any point, then it becomes untrustworthy at every point. But because God keeps his word of judgment, we know that he keeps his word of promise. So God faithfully, uh, his faithfulness and judgment lays this bedrock, this solid foundation for our confidence in his goodness and his promised grace. A merciless God whose word is unwaveringly true would be terrifying. But a merciful God who is compassionate and gracious and does everything he says he will, that's indescribable good news. That's the indescribable good news of the gospel. So not only do we see the curses declared, but also the way to the tree of life was barred. Genesis 3, through 24 says, the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. <coughs> now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. 
he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every which way to guard the way to the tree of life. It's so important to get what's happening here. Man is banished from the presence of God. He's banished from the promise of life and the relationship with God. The question that the rest of the Bible answers, the question that the gospel answers is, what's the way back? How do we get back to restoring what was lost? How do we get back to friendship with God? So it's true, of course, that the way that was barred to Adam was the path leading through the garden back to the tree of life. But ultimately, it wasn't the road leading into Eden that was barred, but the way to life by good works, the way to life by faithful obedience to the covenant king. Any attempt by Adam and Eve or anyone after them to obtain life by works would be doomed to fail due to their sin. There is no mere mortal who can walk this road back to God again. There has to be another way. That way is over. It's a dead end. So where do we go from here? Where does mankind go to get back to God? That takes us to the final word. Not the final word in Genesis 3. I said we wouldn't cover every word in Genesis 3. But the final word of good news comes in Genesis 3. I want to share something with you I read some time ago. These are the words of a widow Uh, reflecting on the death of her husband to cancer. And her words point us to the problem uh, that has come about through the curse and the solution that's only found in Jesus. She says, in that moment when her husband died, I realized that the hardness of Michael's death was a reminder that it is not supposed to be this way. Ever read the first three chapters of Genesis? Man was created for life, not death. But we live in a fallen world, and the cherubim still guard the tree of life with white-hot swords. Our only hope is a Redeemer who has conquered death itself and has risen as he said. Jesus in John 17, speaking with our Father in heaven, says, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Jesus says, I did it. It is finished. I accomplished the work you gave me to do. Adam failed, but Jesus Christ perfectly accomplished his work. What is this work that Jesus was given to do? We find the great work of Christ mentioned here in shadowy form, foretold in Genesis 3. It's Genesis 3.15, and this is the final word of good news. Not the final words in Genesis 3, but the final word of good news. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the final word of hope for sinners like us. This is the final word about sin and suffering, and it's sheer undeserved, surprising grace. One born of the woman who would conquer sin and the grave for you and me. I'm convinced that this grace is the last thing that the devil anticipated when he carried out this plan. It's this jarring left hook out of nowhere. A compassionate and gracious God. I think this is a shocking concept to the cunning enemy. You can just feel the sneer of victory melting into a shuddering fear of defeat. 
The devil continues determined to stamp out the promise. Throughout the story of the Bible, he comes time and again after the line of the coming seed. He's like an angered serpent striking at the head, trying desperately to deliver a mortal blow, but he can never strike above the heel. But God preserves the promised Savior's line from Eden to Bethlehem. And then God upholds his son from Bethlehem to Calvary. And at Calvary, the seed of the woman bruised the devil's head. Our Savior, in victory through the cross, smashes the serpent's head forever in our place. The promise is fulfilled. Jesus' own blood is the death blow to the enemy. Sheer, undeserved, surprising grace. It's the final word of victory. Well, the Satan continues, doesn't he, to wage war against God's people today. But he limps and he weaves and he's a defeated foe. He's a defeated enemy. His days are numbered. The victory has been won and he will not prevent any one of God's people from obtaining the promised life that we will receive in Christ. Because our cursed conqueror, Jesus, has triumphed over the grave. So God's surprising promised grace is the final word of defeat. It's the final word against Satan, death, and hell. It's the final word of hope for cursed sinners like you and me who believe the gospel and who cling to Jesus. Adam and Eve uh, stood shaking in fear of God's wrath. They tried to cover their shame, but God says, no, I will provide what you need. You can't cover your own shame. I will do it. One day, thousands of years after the fall in the garden, a man walking the city streets in Jerusalem would say, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that man is Jesus Christ, our Savior. He was cut down in wrath and death for our sin so that we could be raised with him to life forever. I shared the words of the widow reflecting on her husband's death and that flaming sword that shut out the, the man and woman from the garden and, and from getting back to the tree. But that's over now. It's done. That sword has been done away with. I want to close just with the words of Jonathan Edwards in his sermon, East of Eden, because it paints this picture so powerfully. Edwards says, Christ undertook to lead us to the tree of life, and he went before us. Christ himself was slain by that flaming sword. And this sword, having slain the Son of God, appearing in our name, who was a person of infinite worthiness, that sword did full execution. And when it had shed the blood of Christ, it had done all of its work. And so after that was removed. And Christ, arising from the dead, being a divine person himself, went before us. And now the sword is removed, having executed, having already done everything that it was meant to do, having slain Christ. There is no sword now. There is no sword now. And the way is open and clear to eternal life for those who are in Christ. That's the good news and the final word of hope in Genesis 3. Let's, let's pray together. Father, thank you for this final word of the gospel. Help us to recognize our enemy's attacks, uh, to resist them by clinging to your truth, always leaning on the promised one who has crushed the serpent's head forever. We ask these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.